do sit down. We're just about to have some tea. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream. Scream for your lives. Hey weirdos, the kettle's boiled. Welcome to Tea for Terror, where we take a favourite horror film and dissect it over a nice cup of tea. I'm your host, Andrew Graves, and hopefully my guest today will instinctively seek to kill the thing he loves best. <laughs> Welcome, Tim Wells. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing? How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. What have you been up to? Um... Listening to a lot of reggae, going out drinking, watching a few horror films, and reading way too much. Ah, okay, okay. So, um, yeah, I'm. Uh, it's good to get you on. Um, I think, um, I think obviously a lot of people will know who you are. I mean, uh, the way I kind of got to know you was through the poetry scene. Um, of which I've kind of uh, dipped out of. Uh, you'll probably be pleased to know, um, but I, 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 can't, I it, it just got a bit complicated for me. And I, I just, I, I love poetry, but I just, I kind of stopped. I didn't want to do the performance thing anymore, or anything like that. So, but your name was always kind of high on the list of sort of people I really respected. And it, it's weird actually, because when, um, when I was kind of part of that whole scene. Um, some of the last few gigs I did was with uh, Henry Normal because um, we both kind of, yeah. you know, hell from Nottingham. Um, and, and, and and he was, you know, chatting away and, and he just said, you know, he said one of the people he really respected most on the poetry scene was Tim Wells, you know. So, uh, you know, yeah, it's a... Uh, it, it's great to have you on. So um, just, just in case anybody's not entirely sure where you're at and what you do. Do you want to tell us about your, your kind of history in terms of the poetry stuff and then we'll we'll go into the werewolf books? Well, I started out as uh, one of the ranting poets. Back then, I was probably one of the youngest ones to the point where I used to gig with Stephen Wells uh, quite a lot, not related, but we're both Wellses. And uh, I was known as Teething Wells back in them days as I was smaller, less spotty and better looking. But uh, yeah, gigged with all the ranting poets, uh, gigged a lot of punk bands, a lot of reggae sessions, that kind of stuff. Uh, stuck with the poetry, um, became less ranty, but more poetry. And then uh, got into writing horror novels, which I'm currently doing, as well as a bit of poetry as well. So... Yeah, I mean, obviously, with the film we're going to be looking at today, these these, these books really tie into that. Um, and it, it's kind of slightly difficult to describe, I guess, because well, you, you, you've created this, this brand of werewolf books, and uh, but they're, they're different in terms of what they do is expertly weave together this... Uh, they're, they're almost kind of part sort of pan horror story books and part sort of those early 70s pulp skinhead novels as well and you've combined all this uh, and they're an absolutely superb read so why i mean obviously uh where did that come from um, well, why, why why did you hit upon that well really it started out as a joke um i, I got offered a book deal uh, on the back of a joke i made that um i, I was chatting to uh, john from unbound and uh, i was asking what he had coming up and they were doing dave hill's autobiography which obviously is pretty exciting. 
Oh, yeah, then yeah, uh, yeah. I said to him as a laugh, I goes, oh, I've, I've got this book about a skinhead werewolf. And when the full moon comes out, his sideburns <laughs> get really big. And uh, he was like, right, we want that. And I was like, I'm joking. And then he's like, can you write it? And I was like, yeah, I reckon I can. So it started out as a bit of a spoof, but I got about four or five chapters in and I just was like, actually, I can do this better. And I just started again, but doing it properly. And it was deliberately um kind of swayed really was the template the richard allen book and definitely pan books of horror there's they're definitely referenced in there quite a lot and thematically i kind of picked through a lot of old horror stuff to throw in and also i'm kind of one of those people you know when details are wrong whether it's a film or a book i kind of yeah. it annoyed me with all those kind of 70s pulp agro books the clothes all that kind of stuff was always wrong so i was like i'm gonna get this right which uh, yeah, well, was something a lot of people picked up, picked up on. And it, I was kind of surprised myself how much I wrote about clothes. But going there, <laughs> I was like, fair enough, I did. But uh, well, my favourite comment, actually, of you was uh, an American fanzine called Boots and Booze, who uh, I was quite pleased pointed out that my, even though there's um, werewolves and witches in my books, they're still more accurate than Richard Allen's. <laughs> Well, I mean, a lot of those, uh, you know, I'm I, I'm not a, a massive expert on the sort of skinhead or suedehead scene, but I, I've dipped in and out of those kind of things. But it's um, that, but yeah, I think I think a lot of those books, and also like a lot of those kind of horror books that were pertaining to sort of teenage culture as well. Usually, if it was a film or or a novel or whatever, they you know they were put together by middle-aged men who didn't understand that scene at all. So I mean, it's good. I, I think well, that's I, I what I really both liked about it. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but but you've you've actually been there on the scene and you understand that stuff. You know, it's it's kind of like um, if you watch um, Dracula seven, AD seventy two. I mean, I, I love oh, that. Oh, it's film. a personal favourite. It's, it's just it's, yeah, it's it's great, but it's like the sort of teenage kind of drug scene and all that kind of stuff. If you look at um, from around the same time, if you look at Carry On Camping. In that, you've got like Sid James pretending to be a hippie in this field and <laughs> in this music festival. That's actually slightly more convincing than this sort of teenage scene in uh, Dracula AD seventy two. So uh, yeah, but I, I can I can I can fully recommend uh, your werewolf book. So I mean, we'll give them a plug towards the end of the uh, the uh, uh, podcast, anyway. as well as so, my uh, Moonstomp werewolf beer. I, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, I I don't drink anymore, so so I, I don't partake. Oh, so, I do. Uh, I'll yeah, drink yours but... for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I do do a non non alcoholic version. Not of the lager, but uh, if you go to the Werewolf Brewery's fridge, there'll be something for you. Ah, lovely, lovely. Um, okay, so on that note, then, what um, what was your? I ask this of everybody that comes on, but what's what's your was your entry point into the world of horror? Definitely from the literary side and really fun enough pan book horror stories. I mean, we all loved them at school. I mean, I was at school 70s, so right time for them. Uh, also, the um, Universal films getting shown on the horror double bills on BBC Two back then. So definitely those as well. And... The Hammer stuff as well. I mean, weirdly, with um, Ralph Bates especially, 
always had a good look. Yeah. Very suede sort of look as well, Ralph Bates, especially in uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Well, yeah, I, you see, I mean, uh, we'll get back to Universal uh, shortly, but I think, yeah, definitely with those Hammer films. Uh, I mean, for me, part of it was, I mean, obviously as a kid, you love the monsters and stuff like that. But when you're growing up, um, and you get slightly older and you get more into your duds and your fashion and your style and stuff that you know the way that people dressed i mean it i think this is why now i obviously i love hammer stuff and things like that but any kind of period dramas i love you know all the agatha christie sort of adaptations i love that because i spend half the time thinking yeah i'm having that i'm gonna get that i'm gonna, I'm gonna put this together yeah that waistcoat and that and that tie yeah i love all that stuff and i know that, i know it is really frivolous and shallow but i am quite a frivolous shallow man it's not if you're furrow <laughs> yeah exactly exactly yeah yeah yeah, so uh, any other sort of uh, ways into horror then? So, yeah, obviously you mentioned Hammer. Yeah, I mean, again, stuff. all the sort of New English Library pulp stuff. So James Herbert with, with The Rats was a massive book. Um, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of like the punk rock horror, really, wasn't it, The Rats? Also, yeah, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Um, uh, The Crabs, stuff like that. Was it Guy and Smith? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, James Herbert, yeah, I, you, you couldn't avoid James Herbert in the sort of uh, eight, 70s and 80s. And uh, I love how he's kind of, you know, I bet my life that he's he's pretty much the uh, the template for Garth Marenghi, isn't he? He's just, he's just You'd that hope so. kind of guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, what about, I mean, I always, I ask this all the time of my guests because it was an obsession for me. What about the, the sort of, books about horror films like the you know the dennis gifford stuff and the alan frank stuff were they a kind of influence um, as well less so i mean i've got the sort of big was it octopus or something like that you know there's kind of big yeah, big yeah. horror sort of ones i've got those in fact i still got my old one so i've had a few of those but um i'm kind of less worried about the sort of theorizing about horror i mean i kind of get it i mean i like the fact that in in horror films i've got this quite early on that there's a distinct evil when, when you're a teenager, you, you kind of know that teachers and bosses are evil, but they're kind of amorphous and big. Whereas uh, a vampire, he, he's vast, but you can stake him down. <laughs> you can, you can. Yeah, I mean, I, I again, you know, I mentioned this before, but I think for me, it wasn't because I had access to the, that, the Alan Frank book, particularly the movie Treasury of Horror Movies. And that was a, it wasn't, when I, it was my brother's book and I kind of nabbed it and I was like, you know, seven or eight at the time. And for me, it was just, it wasn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't really get into reading it till later on and, and looking at that kind of theory side of it. But it was more, it was just those pictures because you couldn't, you know, as we'll mention again and again and again on this podcast, in those pre-VHS days, you either saw it at the cinema, well, well if you're a kid, you weren't going to go and see horror films at cinema, or you saw those double bills, or you your only access was through those 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 marvelous little images in those books yeah. and and knowing that you know you probably may never get to see some of those films because we couldn't imagine that a lot of this would be on dvd or streaming or whatever much later on so it was they they became you know you 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 develop this more affectionate bond for them and some of those you know and a lot of those films they would live up to their their images but a lot of them wouldn't but they still remain this kind of obsession i mean luckily we had the scala as well when we was like a little bit older yeah. 
And uh, that that was a really great education because they had so much weird stuff on. And they do like the all-nighters. So we'd go out dancing, go out drinking, and we'd be there like 12 till morning. And uh, we used to sort of see five films in a row and literally anything that a person can do. I've either done or seen being done in the Scala. It was great. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> oh, okay. So we're going to go into the film we're going to look at today then. So the film we're going to be covering at uh, Mr. Wells's behest is the 1935 Universal Horror production Werewolf of London, directed by Stuart Walker. is the only specimen of the Marifesa plant in England. That flower is the only known antidote for werewolfery. A very interesting folktale, but of no value to the police. I warn you, sir, unless you secure this plant, there'll be an epidemic that will turn London into a shambles. So, Tim, when was the first time you came across this film? I'm pretty sure it would have been one of those double bills, sort of late night BBC Two. Well, you know, you know what? Because I thought you might say that. Because um, I, I, I would have been the same. Uh, but I've kind of looked into this. And, and for those that aren't aware, um, between, well, from sort of mid 70s onwards, we had these kind of BBC Two late night horror double bill so from 1975 you had the midnight movie fantastic and then you had things like going on so 76 uh, masters of terror monster double bill masters of terror again the horror double bills that went up until the mid 80s and then later on you had the 1990s dr terror um but i've i've looked into all of the scheduling for that and you know what werewolf of london doesn't come up once. really um, so yeah, so I can, I can so I'm not saying it wasn't on telly, but I'm, it wasn't part of those those double bills. Yeah. So it possibly was on at some point, but separate to it's those double pos- bills. Also possible to put the scarlet as part of some sort of bill. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I can tell you though um, exactly when I first saw Werewolf of London. It was the 15th of February, 1986, and the reason I I know that is because. Channel 4 in the mid-80s had uh, a season of uh, mainly Universal, but other black and white horror films as well. And I remember, because I'd seen all the kind of horror double bills on um, in the 70s and 80s, but then um, when I was a little bit older, I was 16, so I was getting more into the kind of theory stuff. And and so it was was brilliant to be able to revisit uh, those those kind of films and that's so i know that that's the first time i properly saw werewolf of london was 1986 um part of a double bill with the raven if i remember oh, yeah. correctly so yeah so it was um uh, of which uh, you know lester will uh, lester matthews sorry who's in uh, werewolf of london who's a nottingham lad uh, uh, find out today, but yeah, he's also in the Raven. Uh, but yeah, so so um, but uh, so, what is it about this film then? What's what's the big attraction for you? Importantly, I think it was the. I'm pretty sure it was the first werewolf film, 
which is kind of interesting and i believe it sets a lot of the sort of tropes like the whole um full moon and getting bitten by the werewolf i think that starts with werewolf of london also the whole transformation is kind of atypical to it a werewolf transformation now and he, he remains a, a well-dressed werewolf throughout oh yeah i mean yeah it, it, it was um there was there was there was a film from 1913 called the werewolf uh which uh had a female werewolf i believe and it's kind mm -hmm. of riffing on the kind of native american thing but it, it 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 was only kind of a short thing it wasn't really a werewolf film as we come to know it so i think in terms of what we've come to understand as a werewolf film then werewolf of london was 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 pretty much the first proper werewolf film and i think um yeah i, I mean like you say it is it's that style uh it is and again that's another thing that fascinates me and again going back to that alan frank book there was a great image from uh werewolf of london in there um and it it just stood out it stood out more than any other so it was on a page with like the what lon cheney jr uh, Wolfman and stuff like that, uh, and to me it just stood out. And I think it is about the 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 dress. You know, it's kind of like the the Baker Boy hat and the sort of Sherlock Holmes style cape. And it and is the it's all um, it. Yeah, exactly. And it's more um, it it it's less Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and uh, more Thomas Shelby meets the Wolfman, <laughs> isn't it? It's very sort of Peaky Blind. I, I, I loved um, uh, Henry Hull's diction as well. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, the, but, I there's, mean, there's another couple of weird things I really like about the film as well. There's there's a, some really strange male female stuff. They've got like is it, it the frog oh, God, eating yeah. plant, which is very female, <laughs> and then yeah, to yeah, yeah. the the Marifaza plant, you have to prick yourself with the thorn of the plant, which is <laughs> fair enough. There's definitely some. I'm not sure what but i'm kind of i know where what's going on there but yeah that, that's quite fascinating and also i i like the old uh black and white sort of 30s 40s films that are, they're filmed in america but set in england for so the whole sort of weird take on english culture and bad accents of which um wilf of london has got a couple yeah i mean that's that i mean that's one of the things i wanted to look at really because it's um if you think about those um, 1930s American horror films, this is really, you know, obviously you're going back into the 20s, Universal uh, had already done more literary forms of loosely connected to horror, like Hunchback of Notre Dame and Phantom of the Opera. And, you know, obviously it, Lon Chaney's incredible makeup works and stuff like that. Yeah, amazing, you know. But obviously, in terms of horror as we know it, talking horror begins with Dracula, 1931, and then you get Frankenstein, 1931, slightly later on. But it, it's, I think what's really interesting about those, particularly those Universal films, is that those 30s horror films, they obviously are American. They are American productions, but they're obviously dominated by European and english 
actors, creatives, directors, cinematographers. And also, but, but wider than that, a lot of those films seem to completely avoid America as a country. You know, most of those films are either in some sort of distant, weird-looking version of Europe or Eastern Europe. I mean, in in Dracula, you've got the famous, you know, where we're at Dracula Castle, which we're led to believe is Transylvania yeah. in Romania. But then you've got like armadillos wandering <laughs> around. It's but just, also, so is this with we're, Werewolf of London? You got the the very last shot is the plane flying west. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 and I, but also, it's just. Um, I mean, I, let let's get into universal horror because it is, you know, we can't talk about. Wealth of London without expanding in universal horror. So what? Why? Why? Why is that? Why is that company and what it produced, particularly in the thirties? And obviously they went on to do forties and fifties kind of horror films. But in the thirties, I would argue, is them at their peak. Why? Why the films that were coming out, the horror films coming out of that studio in the thirties? Why were they so important? I think for me, I like they, they've got kind of my my two. My two literary obsessions, really, in in that they're definitely pulp, but they've also got some depth to them. So, like you said, there's quite a few literary references that come through. They kind of know what they're doing, but they're also pulpy enough to have a bit of fun. And I mean, Spring Byington in um, Werewolf London is a great comic turn, for example. I mean, one of my favourite scenes is when she's drunk at the party. So they send her upstairs to bed, and then the werewolf gets into the room. So she comes screaming downstairs. They're all like. She's had one too many. Send her back up. I mean, yeah, I, I, the women don't they don't get really get really that that fair treatment in wealthy London, do they? They're either kind of um, they're having affairs on the side, or or they're like they're lushes, or they're they're sort of you know they, these kind of gossips. They they they're not presented particularly well in wealth of London. They're not, but I do like the cocky landladies. Yeah, oh god, yeah, I I love that. You know that these these like little gossipy sort of Greek chorus yeah. stuff popping up in Actually, the middle. Actually, it is very chorus. Greek chorus. Yeah, it's very Coronation Street as well. If you think about what came, you know, thirty odd years later with Coronation Street, it's that kind of thing. It's very um, love on the dole as well. If you think about the chorus yeah. of those ladies between that, it, it reminds me of that. It's got, it's got a lot of stuff. Uh, going on but yeah i mean universal horror i mean yeah like i said it begins sort of 1931 with dracula and i think it's interesting that um around the same time it's when the phrase the american dream really starts to take hold is around that time and and it kind of illustrates the sort of either the naivety or or the cynicism of America as a country, I think, because if you've got, you know, America's in the throes of the worst depression ever. You know, people are losing their homes on the streets, starving to death, whatever. Uh, and we're being thrown this kind of, well, American dream. Anybody can make it. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly cynical thing to put across. But obviously, it also coincides with this much darker view that you're getting in the sort of universal horror films. Um, I mean, and I think the other key thing I think with Werewolf of London is that yes, it's a universal horror film. Yes, it's in the 30s, but crucially, it's 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 on it's between. Uh, it's not a pre-code film because uh, the pre so pre-code when we talk about pre-code 
for those that don't know, um, essentially William Hayes was employed by the, the film industry to sort of self-regulate, really. And it, re it really was a light touch. There, was, there were guidances there, but they were not really adhered to. And it's not until you got the, the production code and uh, coming in later on in 1934 where things really began to adhere and people had to stick to these regulations or they get, you know, they get fined or whatever. So things started to change. But well, it's surprising how racy Tarzan was. Well, yeah, this is it. Um, but things, they were still sneaking things through. If you look at, you know, this film, Werewolf of London, was made at the same time um, concurrently with Bride of Frankenstein. And if you if you look at Bride of Frankie, I mean, there there aren't many films that are as subversive as Bride of Frankenstein because James Whale had, you know, he was he was kind of uh, well ahead of the game, and he would learn to he'd put this in the script and this in the script, knowing it was going to get cut out. But then he could put all this kind of much more subversive sort of these visual references, you know, anti-religion. Uh, you know, all this kind of stuff, these kind of homoerotic images. Um, and I think as well, the same year you get uh, Bride of Frankenstein, Werewolf of London um, from MGM. You also get um, uh, 1935's uh, Mad Love, which is probably one of the most perverse horror films ever made, I would argue. But again, it's this thing. So I think it's, you know, this idea that suddenly in 1934, things got much more serious. It was much more censorship. That is true. But I think really inventive, creative, artistic directors were still managing to kind of stick it to the man in mm. a way. And I think there's a lot of stuff in Werewolf of London, which we'll get to slightly later on, which is, yeah, I, I would I think is is very subversive for the time. And and I guess you can also read, you you know you can be uh, you know uh, guilty of reading too much into it. But I think from a, from a 21st century viewpoint, but I still think there is definitely stuff there in this film. So um, what about the um, the makeup then. I mean, we, we touched upon the look, but in terms of your classic werewolves and, you know, so we've got um, obviously the makeup's done by Jack P. Pierce, who was a legend in terms of make, creating makeup. So before this, you'd had people like Lon Chaney who were, who were making their own sort of makeup jobs and classic Phantom and Hunchback in the Notre Dame and all these kind of fantastic things. But then you've got Jack P. Pierce, um, who actually started off? He started off in sort of amateur baseball, and then he tried to get involved in the acting world, um, and, and then um, he kind of moved away from sort of acting and stunt work, and ended up um, doing doing sort of makeup for people. Um, you know what? What's your take on Jack P. Pierce and about what he created? I I'm going to answer that with a poem. Funny enough. All right. But uh, a mate of mine, uh, Nilo Sullivan, actually did a poetry collection called Werewolf of London, which has got a whole section of poems about it, which came out, let me have a look, 2021. And uh, this poem is called Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. The transformation is no crossfade paralysis, nor bone crunching, flesh ripping frenzy. It is no different within to the last choice you made, though you always knew which way it would go. And the choice was nothing more than pantomime, a necessary ritual. 
The having out with oneself was really a Masonic handshake, a changing of the guard to let oneself fade as the other steps forward to take the wheel. For the stuck-up botanist, a clumped knot of convention and regret to give way to the widow's peak and a slight pronouncement of fingernail and fang. The tuck still fits and the caps still gleam. The wolf does not wake, snarling within a thrash basement, his evening suit shredded. No, he calmly slips on his coat and cap, brunches a lab door shut, treads lightly. Excellent. Brilliant. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Um, so what? Okay, so getting back to Jack P. Pierce a second. So, I mean, well, I think undoubtedly, I, I think like Henry Hull was 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 quite a, a, a stagey person before getting into. He film. was, yeah, and he obviously was pretty dap handed his own makeup. And I know, I know there was a thing where Henry Hull wanted less makeup because he wanted to like express with the face. Well. There's different versions of that, and there's different things to think about. Because I mean, I think um, one of the, you know, usually the story goes well. Um, Henry Hall didn't want to sit through hours and hours of makeup. Because if you think about later on, sort of six years later or whatever, you got Lon Chaney Jr. as the Wolfman, um, and even though he loved being in those films, I mean, Jesus, the makeup jobs for him. He was there for hours and hours and hours and hours. So you can understand that Henry Hall might not have wanted that kind of experience. Um, but like you said, he was quite adept at doing his own makeup as well. Uh, him, him being, you know, as you said, quite sort of, he's kind of a theatre guy. Um, but also the other thing I think is that um, it, it wasn't necessarily about his vanity, you know, wanting his face to be on the screen. If, but if you look at the actual script, there's parts of the script where characters recognise Glendon, even though he's the Wolfman well, character. Had again, he had, yeah, had he had a kind of Lon Chaney Jr. makeup job, that wouldn't the script wouldn't have made sense. Yeah. So I think there's lots of factors. I don't think it was just Henry Hall being sort of slightly vain or whatever. No. But also the other thing is that a lot of people also talk about that makeup job as being sort of lesser than the the Wolfman makeup which Jack P. Pierce did for, you know, Lon Chaney Jr. I I've never really dug that makeup, you know. I, I, I don't mind. I quite like the Wolfman as a film and it is kind of iconic in a way, but it's always felt a bit more um, he's always felt more like a teddy bear, I think. Whereas there's something much more stylish and much more slightly sinister and horrific about that Henry Hall makeup. Well, I think with Wolf of London, there's there's a lot more like internal conflict, I think. I mean, than than in the Wolfman. He, he's, I mean, Larry's quite a good guy in the Wolfman. Yeah. Whereas, whereas Henry Hall, he's got that like there's, there's the jealousy between him and his wife's ex. Um, you know, he, he's got his work and all that. There's a lot of anger in him. And that all comes yeah, out in The Wolf. Yeah. yeah, he's not. I mean, yeah, like you said, Larry Tolbert in The Wolfman, played by Lon Chaney Jr. He's quite, yeah, he's a quite tragic sort of protagonist. And you do feel for him. And he is quite a likeable guy. You don't really get that. It's not that he's not an interesting character, um, Glendon, uh, played by oh, he's a great uh, character. Henry Hall. But it, yeah, he's, he's not... Um, he is absolutely obsessed with what he's doing, and 
And obviously, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get into more of the sexual politics uh, in, in short. Well, I think, you know, um, wrapping up a little bit on the makeup, though, I'm definitely a carpet face werewolf. I don't like the modern ones. Give me the carpet face every time. <laughs> to the point where in my um, werewolf novels, he's carpet face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, well I, the thing is, it, I, I, growing. I mean, obviously, you know, I love things like uh, American Wolf in London and and The Howling. I, I, I love those Both films. Um, but I, I, but yeah, but something about growing up with those Universal or Oliver Reed in Curse of the Werewolf, it's, it kind of, it, it kind of gives kids something to aim for. It's much more. It's much easier to do if you've got something like a giant dog, basically, which you've got in American Wolf in London. You can't really do that as a kid. Whereas uh, the werewolves you're getting in the Universal or Hammer films, you can be that. Yeah. Or the Legend of the Werewolf. You know, it's that. It's kind of that. You know, you, you could stick a bit of your dad's uh, uh, shavings <laughs> on you or whatever. Yeah, you, know, you could be the werewolf, couldn't you? Yeah. It's just uh, it was kind of easy access. Definitely. So Tim, uh, this. Um, it's got it is you know like you said earlier on it is you know even though there had been kind of touches of kind of they've skirted around the werewolf thing before like with 1913's the werewolf this is one of the first proper bona fide werewolf films though but it does have a very different feel um to a lot of other more classic werewolf films i think this has much more in common with something like the earlier Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, or even James Wells' The Invisible Man. And in terms of, you know, thematically, it's got a lot in common with the later cat people as well. But there is something about that kind of the lab spaces and the way it's presented and science being as well as this kind of supernatural elements and, and the kind of the... Um, the the sort of more forces of evil and all this kind of this this kind of weird stuff uh it is a kind of proto science fiction film it is and i think the better for it and and also interestingly with the invisible man uh they've got the great um pub scene which i think is set in sussex and weirdly got a pub full of cockneys but it's very like the um pub scenes in in uh Wolf in london which are some of my favorite scenes yeah, well, I mean, from an American point of view, particularly at that time, there are only there are only two kinds of British people, weren't there? There's, there's, well, that you, definitely comes across in Werewolf in London. Yeah, you, yeah. You've got you, the toffs you, you in the know. party who uh, spring bike and says, um, "Just over there is the worst district in London. Knife you for a shilling." And then you've got Mrs. <laughs> Moncaster and Mrs. Wax sat in a pub eating tripe and drinking gin, which are uh, yeah. I'm, I mean, there are. I, I mean, it, it's like some of those scenes that you mentioned. I mean, we've got the the sort of gin ladies and the landladies and all that, and the, you know these kind of uh, female lushes, if you like, and and these kind of really interesting sort of character types. I mean, they are something that when I was a kid, uh, if I'd have probably. You know, I didn't see this till I was 16, so I was kind of ready for it. But I think if I'd have seen it when I was seven or eight, um, I probably wouldn't have been into this film as I am now because it is all those little interesting details which make it a much fuller film for me and a much, yeah. much more interesting experience. I think, I think it's probably... It's not 
a popular thing to say, but uh, I I do think it's a more interesting film than The Wolfman from from later on because I think part of that is because I I would just always gravitate more towards the nineteen thirties um, Universal films um, rather than the sort of and as a kid. I loved the sort of second phase of Universal films. It's kind of like from 1939 to, to the 40s where you're getting, you know, Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein and all those kind of things. Um, but there is something a bit gnarlier and a bit more perverse and a bit stranger and a bit more um, artistic and creative about those or- original run of 1930s horror films. I mean... This isn't, you know, crucially, this isn't, um, it, it's not a, a pre-code film, but it, it's slightly after that. But I, I think it still gets away with things that you, you, you probably, you definitely wouldn't have got away with in a film like um, The Wolfman, which came six years later. Yeah, I mean, as, you know, the plants we talked about earlier, there's definitely a lot going on there. Yeah, the plants, I mean, the plants is a... I mean, it is all a bit. I, I mean, that. I mean, that is a. That, that's the other thing you forget when you work. This is what it, it is kind of as well as the that um, the H.G. Wells kind of um, Invisible Man vibe. There, there is also with the sort of the plants that that he's got in his his, his laboratory. It's a bit um, Island of Doctor Moreau or Island of Lost Souls as well. There's there's there's, there's stuff there. He probably shouldn't be messing around with. Well, it's very much the fact it's, it's very much HG Wells reading White House, <laughs> I think. But. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so, um, what? I mean, what about what's what's going on then? Because there is this. Um, there's no getting getting around the fact that there is this strange um, kind of. Uh, sexual politics going on with this film you've got i mean one way of looking at it is that you know you've got lisa his wife played by valerie hobson who's also in bride of frankenstein who is clearly it's heavily implied she's having an affair with her old school friend paul who's just come back on the scene well in no Um, uncertain times when when she's told not to go out uh, during the exactly i'll go out tonight i'll go out tomorrow night and i'll go out any night i want Yes, you know, don't go out when the full moon's out there. There's something quite horrible out there. No, I'm going. I'm going. Um, so, so there is that, and there is. So, you could argue that the kind of werewolf thing is this, um, this, this metaphor for for his kind of jealousy, or his, or his possibly his sexual in, impotency in terms of that situation. Uh, but the other, you know this this idea of the savage beast coming to the surface, but there is also this other thing of it perhaps um, if you look at it from you know more analytically perhaps you, you you've got this um, this weird relationship between Glendon and Doctor Yagami. Um, so not only is that presented as as kind of um, possibly homoerotic you've also got this other element for the time which had been quite sort of you know um not acceptable for the time this idea of a possible homoerotic relationship but a possible homoerotic relationship with someone who is uh, even though the actor is actually swedish uh, he is 
you know, he's being presented as kind of this this strange kind of mystical Oriental character, and he, the the actor actually played uh, in Charlie Chan, didn't he? So, he was Charlie um, Chan. Yeah, so so there is this kind and of hint of this sort of yeah. Spring Bynum calls him Doctor Yokohama all the way through the film. Yeah, she does as well, and it is this kind of you know derogatory sort. Of, you know, you do get there are you know these kind of elements of the sort of that that very much of the time sort of yellow peril sort of situation um and there and there was hints um before they made this film obviously it was made at the same time as um bride of frankenstein uh, and i think that originally they had thought about possibly casting boris karloff in the glendon role and bela lugosi as the yagami role um i think it would have been a different film i'm not sure it would have been as good um i love those two when they team up i think black cat is one of my favorite films ever and you know talk about perverse it doesn't get much more perverse than the black cat <laughs> I, I like it with henry hull i'm a big fan of henry hull i do and i, do. I think his his christmas his diction especially i think really works in werewolf in london yeah, I, I was surprised, actually, when I started, um, you know, looking into Henry Hall. I, I would have put money on him being a Brit, but no, he is American. And, and, and he, but he, do, he does kind of, uh, he has, because I, I was thinking of, before I kind of started doing research, I was thinking of more of a um, a kind of James Whale or a Claude yeah. Rains character, you know, because they, they were both, you know, working class lads. Well, and yeah, they Claude kind Rains of was, ended up in Hollywood. Claude yeah. Rains was actually Cockney, wasn't he? And, uh, yeah. you know, lost his accent and, uh, on purpose. But. Yeah, and James Whale, I think, was, uh, he was uh, West Midlands. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and again, they, they, they both, as soon as they got to Hollywood, they kind of just reinvented themselves and, and they kind of lost... Um, well, in terms of their accents, anyway, they kind of lost those roots. But it, it's really interesting. So I, I kind of assumed for a long time that Henry Hall was that as well. But no, he's an American guy, and he, but he do He's very convincing as a Brit, I think. He's you know? good, but I, I especially like um, accents in Universal films. I mean, uh, Sherlock Holmes, especially. There's, there's whenever they go to like the East End in a Sherlock Holmes film, you know it's going to be comedy gold. <laughs> yes. Also, the girl who gets killed at the at the zoological gardens, she's got one of the worst Cockney accents ever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, but I mean the two, uh, the 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 two sort of you know the the gin drinking ladies you um we talked about, but it, I mean that is. There's something very, you know, they are the kind of Greek chorus, aren't they? And it's, yeah. it's kind of like they, they, it's very similar. They are almost kind of templates for Coronation Street or Love on the Dole <laughs> or something like that. It's very much that kind of vibe that's going on. And again, it's one of those things I wouldn't necessarily picked up on or even enjoyed when I was a kid. I think if I'd have been as a kid, it would have been, oh, come on, where's the monster? Where's the monster? But um, now, of course, as an adult, I, I find it fascinating. Well, I, I love it, them it, peeping it, through the keyhole. Yeah, into Henry yes. Hall's room. I love that bit. Yeah, and it, it it's like you know again like with something like Frankenstein from thirty one or Dracula or even Bride of Frankenstein, it's kind of what I love. Yeah, obviously you love Karloff and you love Doctor Pretorius and you love Lugosi in, in Dracula, but it's also you know one of my favorite characters in. Uh, well, favourite actors in Dracula and Frankenstein is Dwight Fry. You know, Dwight Fry in Frankenstein, scuttling round as Fritz, the yeah. hunchback, or, 
uh, Renfield in Dracula, just absolutely terrifying, but fascinating. And and also, you know, people talk about this idea of, um, you know, people like Brando later on or even Charles Lawton, you know, coming up with, you know, they're, they're being more exponents of this more natural style of acting. Uh Dwight Fry was doing it from the start. You look at Dwight Fry in Dracula and particularly Frankenstein, the way he moves and the way he'll just stop and pull his socks up. And he's just, he is absolutely naturally spot on. He's just a brilliant performer. I read a great and it um, is... autobiography by Jimmy Cagney, who, uh, who started out obviously with Song and Dance, but he said he approached all of his roles as, as a, as a choreographer. He, he goes and dance for everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you can see that. I mean, oh, yeah, Cagney. I mean, that's the kind of whole podcast on its own. I, I, oh God, I love Jim, Jimmy Cagney. Uh, you know, obviously getting back to what we we're talking about earlier on, you know, his portrayal of uh, Lon Chaney yeah. in uh, Man with a Thousand Faces. Just, just, uh, you know, not saying it's uh, particularly accurate <laughs> in terms of historical events, but it's a cracking, really entertaining film, I think. Well, as it happens, I've got uh, another of Noel's poems here, which is uh, the testimony okay. of Mrs. Moncaster, which which might be a good spot to throw in here. Brill, go on. They're always high and mighty, well-bred and long-wordy. The ones that pay up a week in advance, but you don't know the real man till you took a nip of gin and seen him framed by the keyhole. And I thought I'd seen it all. The bank manager's hairy ass up and down on Boozy Beryl. The superintendent doled up as a princess of Wales. But when I heard howling from a garret upstairs and crouched down to grab me an eyeful, the whole bloody bottle went and slipped from me grip. Me poor giddy heart never had such a shock since me wedding night. <laughs> Brill. So, um, in terms of this film, then, so so let's let's pretend that someone's listening to this and they're not entirely familiar with it. What would you point out as being? Uh, I mean, we talked a few things there, but what would you point out as being key scenes? Key scenes, definitely for me, the pub scene, which we've just been talking about, where he's kind of deciding, what am I going to do? I'm, yep, yeah, I'm a werewolf. I can't do much about it. What am I going to do with it? I, th I love yeah. that kind of middle section of the film. I really like it. Really kind of gets into his predicament yeah yeah it does yeah what about the um the transformation scene because that is transformation one of the yeah again it's kind of atypical now because as as we've been saying he still remains the best dressed werewolf in cinema through the film and uh all the better for it i think yeah i, I... I mean, he looks he looks spot on, and and you know, as mentioned before, it's just that idea. I I'd much rather have Henry Hall in in that makeup than than Lon Chaney Junior in in the classic Wolfman makeup. I mean, Jack P. Pierce did a great job on both of them. Don't get me wrong, but it's something about that. It's the widow's peak. I mean, it's speaking of someone who's got a uh, a widow's peak, I'm all. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, and also that the transformation that for those that aren't aware, I mean, what you what you the classic bit of the transformation, you do get sort of more your classic. You see a close up of his hands and you see the sort of the, the time lapse photography of his hands getting hairier. But 
what's brilliant about it is there's a key where he just walks from one end of the room to the other and as he passes through different objects or different walls you get different stages of the transformation and it looks fucking great it looks really it's the most it's this most stylish um transformation you know obviously you know talk about sort of more brutal sort of transformation scenes you've got the howling and american wolf in london but in 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 terms of something just incredibly suave if i was a werewolf fuck that i'm not fucking doing the the american wolf in london transformation bollocks to that i'm doing the fucking werewolf of london transformation well i think it's it, much better it, it brings in as well like uh Nye was talking about in his poem where it brings the humanity with the werewolf you know, they're yeah. both wrapped up together. This film is, it's its about, this is a human character in all, for all its faults. You know, it's not about, it's not necessarily a celebration of being human. It is kind of, pretty much everybody in this films. There's, there's not many people with redeeming characteristics in this films. They're all up to kind of something. They're all up to sort of, they're all morally quite dubious. Yeah. You know, whether it's your toffs at your party getting pissed or just wasting their money. You know, his wife's having an affair. This guy, Paul, comes out of nowhere and starts, you know, banging on with someone else's missus. He's clearly up to no good with his strange plants and his laboratory and his werewolfing about at night. You know, it's it's it, there are. It's not like you've got these kind of heroes and villains. They are all quite dodgy, yeah. and it's more interesting because of that, I think. And interestingly, as well, you see werewolves now. It's always top fangs. With with Henry yes. Bell, it's the bottom jaw. Ah, uh, what that well, means, I don't know. Well, you see, I I liked that as a kid as well because because uh, you could my, do it, couldn't you? Yeah, because I because I'm British, and you know, I've got shit teeth like everybody yeah, in Britain has. Yeah, I've got the kind of that I could do that. Yeah, so I I really like that. So, um, what about um the werewolf in uh, a wider context then? So, where obviously this film, but where are you? What what other kind of werewolf films and are you sort of doing? Well, when I was writing my werewolf books, they're consciously carpet face werewolf so i'm, I'm definitely <laughs> erring on that side which uh for me is the proper werewolf but other films i'd like um frankenstein meets the wolfman there was a lot of bad spin-offs but that one really works for me i like that a lot and also Frank. a company wolves which goes the other way really that kind of really gets into the subconscious and the meanings of it and Angela Carter, fantastic writer, so no surprise there. And there's a lot going on, which I like in that film. Company of Wolves is, yeah, I mean, given that it's, you know, it's a couple of years on from The Howling and uh, The American Wolf in London. Both so good. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think a lot of films that kind of tried and kind of failed to do the werewolf thing sort of riffed on those films and, and kind of just, didn't really get what they were doing they were trying to do the aesthetic mm. but yeah it was something like company of wolves absolutely does something very it takes it back to its roots and it takes it back obviously to the the sort of red riding hood the brutality of those fairy tales and how they were pretty much those fairy tales weren't they were you know they, this is before they become 
Disneyfied. And they weren't it weren't about presenting you with nice stories. It was about these were warnings to children. Yeah. And warnings to young females, you know, don't wander into the woods. These you know, you get to a certain age, these male predators are out and they're gonna they're gonna do stuff to you, you know. It's brilliantly done. And I think the other the other film that came slightly later on, which does deals with similar issues in a slightly different way, is Ginger Snaps. Have you seen Oh that's Ginger a good Snaps? film, the Canadian one, yeah. Yeah. And I think um, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. I think that's interesting. I I love that film now. I've I've had a complete. I loved it as a kid um, because, as an adult, you might look back and think, well, you know, Frankenstein is obviously it. It objectively, it's a better film. You know, it's a well-made film. It's brilliantly put together. There are some great concepts in it. As an adult, you, you're going to respond to that. And if you're going to write about film, you're going to write about probably Frankenstein. However, I have written before about Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, and my so my defense of that film is that. You know, when you're an eight-year-old kid, you are not a film critic. You're not looking for themes. You're not looking for this kind of context. You're after monsters and monsters and monsters. And it was one of the first films to do that kind of mashup. You know, you you chucking these two iconic characters together and having having them have a fight at the end. I I but I think as an adult watching the film, I I love it even more now because I think there is there's lots of stuff in there. Again, it, there's kind of lots of stuff about the the foreigner and the outsider being yeah. pushed to the edges of society. It's a really really interesting film. It's much more interesting and much more clever than than people give it credit for. But if you just want to strip that away and see it as this kind of monster mash kind of fight film it's that as well and it's just as entertaining it's, it's great it's definitely one of the better ones uh any other any anything else to say about werewolf of london um it's weirdly got a little poetry bit in it as well it does yeah yeah when um spring Byington says only god can make a daffodil and henry hole corrects her and says uh the poet said only god can make a tree which i looked into and uh, it's a poem by Joyce Kilmer from 1913 called Trees. <laughs> well, d- see, that's why I invite him onto the podcast, because he knows his stuff. Um, yeah, so, yeah, brilliant. So, um, Tim, do you want to um, give us, uh, give your books a plug? Where can we get the werewolf books from and how can people access I've them? I've got two uh, unashamedly pulp werewolf novels. They're both skinhead werewolves, so one in 1979, one in 1980. One's called Moonstomp, and the other one is called Shine On Me. Uh, you can get them online, all the usual places, apart from threads, so far. <laughs> and uh, probably from a few bookshops, and also for sale at the Werewolf Brewery in Camden Town, where you can go see a very hairy man sell your beer, drink Moonstomp lager, named after my book and read a werewolf book you can't say fairer than that you cannot you cannot um so talking of uh, the internet and stuff so yeah if you can make sure you follow us on our t for terror facebook page or our t for terror twitter page or indeed our t for terror instagram page i'm not on threads yet because i'm i'm not sure growing up 
in the 80s uh, kind of put me off anything with the name Thread. So I'm still a bit traumatised from that. So, um, yeah, so uh, it just remains for me to thank my guest today, who's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much, Tim Wells. Thanks for the bullet. <laughs> and you know what? We didn't mention Warren Zevon once. We didn't, no, we didn't, no. Um, so remember to call round next time. Make yourself at home. You're probably dying for a nice cup of tea for terror. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. (laughs) 